0: Uh, Turn now in your Bibles to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. I'd like to read the two verses that come up this morning, Leviticus chapter 19. It'll be verses 17 and 18, but I'd like to pray first. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to spend time in your word as part of worship on the Lord's day, to hear your word preached, taught, and to respond to it in a manner that is Christian, in a manner that is noble and true. I pray that our ears and hearts would be open in Jesus' name. Amen. So Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18 say, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You may be seated. So first of all, hopefully you notice there at the, the end of it, this is the verse Jesus quotes, to provide us with the second greatest commandment. Second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's from Leviticus, likely the most often ignored book written by Moses. That's the second greatest commandment is coming from Leviticus. It should go to show you, you should pay more attention to the Old Testament law. In these verses, 17 and 18, it appears the word brother, neighbor, and sons of your own people are interchangeable. Not speaking of three different types of people there. It's not three different classifications of people and how they would respond differently to these different classifications. It's it's interchangeable. And certainly Jesus supports the broader definition of neighbor to be all of these things. In his parable of the Good Samaritan, it becomes clear that your neighbor is more than just your Jewish kinsmen. That parable of the Good Samaritan came out of a conversation. I'm going to read it to you just briefly. It's in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And the reason I spend time on this is because oftentimes we think we should treat people close to us much different in a sense, that we're more obligated, without any obligation, to people outside of our families or our church or our community. Yet, that doesn't seem to be what Jesus thinks. Luke 10, beginning in verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So he got it right. There's two important commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then, secondly, you love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, but this guy, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He wanted to be particular. This legal expert who knew the, the great commandments. He got that right, but he wondered, love of neighbor, shouldn't that be limited in its scope? In the parable, which I won't read now, Jesus illustrated what a loving neighbor looked like. The loving neighbor, the hero of his story is the Samaritan. Okay, you remember, the guy's in the ditch, the, the, the priest walks by on the other side of the road, doesn't help him. The, the Levite walks by, doesn't help the poor man. But here comes the poor Jewish man, but here comes a Samaritan, despised by the Jews. And he's the one who pours forth love. The Samaritan loved. He loved the Jew when other Jews did not. Further, the Jews typically harbored, typically harbored a great grudge when it came to these Samaritans. They thought of them as traitor brothers of the northern kingdom, who rebelled against the crown in Judah, who intermarried with foreign women and their gods, and who forsook the god of Zion. They were dogs. The Jews, on the other hand, considered themselves purer. But frankly, and Jesus knew this, the Jews had become quite censorious, censoring everybody, quite judgmental over every little thing. In their religious community, fault-finding was everywhere common, There was little charity among the Jews and a lot of vindictiveness in their judgments. Jesus spoke against them because they were so quick to condemn people for wrongdoing and they were so hypocritical. This will all come around. Please stay with this. I'm dealing with how Jesus approached this subject. Luke 6 records Jesus saying something important. It should open our eyes to whom we consider worthy of our love. He says, beginning in verse 41, oh, sorry, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? No, I already read that, didn't I? Sorry. So then the purer Jews are not living in their neighbor. They should. That The Samaritan, who is not a Jew, is Jesus' example of what a good neighbor love looks like. So take the example of proper love. Combine it to another spot. Now, this is what I want to point out to you that you should be very careful to open your eyes to. Jesus said, Luke 6, starting in verse 27, But I say to you who hear, That others would do to you, do so to them. In verse 36 of that passage, Jesus elaborates. He says, Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Jesus is telling us to love even our enemies, love our enemies, and and wow. Then he goes on and says, this is to imitate God. And that's been a reoccurring theme in Leviticus 19. These laws are so that we can become and act as God would act. So we need to get this idea straight that even those who hate you, You should love them and do good to them. It's easy, Jesus says, to love those who love you or treat you right. In fact, that comes a little later in the verses. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. That's a hard horse pill to swallow. Isn't it? Very difficult. It's difficult enough just loving your own people. That you're supposed to love your enemies. Jesus knows we will be charitable with our family members, right? They can screw up a lot and we'll still love them and forgive them, most of the time. But he, he says we must extend that same charity even to our enemies, and that seems a little ridiculous. Continuing, the Apostle Paul provides a practical action-taking description for loving someone. It's a bag full of golden nuggets, what Paul, what Paul gives us. And it comes from 1 Corinthians. I won't even tell you the chapter because of what it does in your brain. It comes from 1 Corinthians, and it's three verses that tell us how to act out of love. These verses tell you how you should deal with coworkers, these verses tell you how you should deal with coworkers, with customers, suppliers, all in the workplace. These verses tell you how to treat young and old in the church. They tell you the proper way to partake in your uh, political interactions with people, even those who don't agree with you. These things are what you should be doing and thinking about. And here... Here they are, the gold nuggets. He says, love is patient and kind. Okay? I want you to go, oh, yes, that's a wonderful verse, and it was at my wedding. Get rid of that garbage. All right? No offense if you had it at your wedding. This is not a wedding verse, although we've kind of considered it or come to consider it a wedding verse. This is a life passage. How we are to be at home, how we are to be in the workplace, how we are to be in the church and in the the community and in the nation and world, all right? As, As people, as individual Christians. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Okay, these these are the tests of whether you're loving in the political realm too. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. If I was just rude there when I raised my voice, I apologize. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. That'll be a key word coming up later here. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I really fear that these precious descriptions on how to love your neighbor have been left lying like confetti at that wedding where the verses were quoted. The text is so often considered a marriage text to which the apostle never relegated it. It's almost like Satan said, give me one of the most important passages in scripture, and I'll find a way to set it aside. And so we love what it sounds like, and we say this would be great for me and my spouse as we're we're married and live our life together, and that's where we keep it. We apply it only to husband and wife, and we forget that these are the very things we should be doing each and every day in our relationships. And so we don't have to think about these things when it comes to how we treat each other as co-workers. And we don't have to think about these things when we consider one another in the church. And we don't have to think of these things when it comes to politics and elections and governing. I fear, I fear that Satan has gotten the upper hand with this. is it any wonder why we can freely share our contempt freely share our contempt for political figures today or backbite a coworker or act carelessly toward other church members do you really think you are demonstrating love when you take no time to talk with or be near others in the congregation? Is, is it love when you create strife to gain an advantage politically or in the workplace? Is that love? How, how should we be in these relationships? Paul tells us you should be patient and kind. Rejoice with the truth, and you should bear and believe and hope and endure all things. This is, who I, this is who I want to be among my neighbors, in my church, at work, at home, within the community. And I fail. It's a good thing. Elders and preachers don't have to be perfect in order to preach and teach the second greatest command requires a life a life's worth of effort all right two commands this is your life go do it daily commitment it's okay This is what life is supposed to be. Loving God first and foremost and loving your neighbor as yourself. You know what? It doesn't really matter if you get that big buck. If you're failing at these things. It doesn't matter if you have a successful business. If you fail at this. Or whether you have many children or few. It doesn't matter if you're failing at this. I have on my prayer list three people that I feel have caused me harm in my past. More people have caused me harm than these three, but these three are on my list. They stand out to me because of what they did. It still bothers me. And I think I've forgiven them, but maybe not. Okay? I don't lie awake at night thinking about them, not getting to sleep or anything like that. But, have I forgiven them? I have them on my prayer list because I see them as people I need to think lovingly about. It's not coming naturally. I need to think lovingly about them. I cannot hold a grudge Or want bad things to happen to them as some form of justice, retribution from on high. Like they've got their comeuppance for what they did to me or to mine. Okay, because usually it's not what someone does to me. It's what someone does to mine. Which includes you in this case, in one instance. and, And the company in the other instance. They did me wrong, that's unquestionable, as I'm wrestling with, but water under the bridge? There are some things you need to leave to God. Vengeance is mine, say, says the Lord, I will repay. I like that, I can take comfort in that, but should I want God to avenge me against them? but should I want these three to get right with God on it and then I'll be right with it? I'll be honest, currently, I don't think any one of them has thought twice about what they did to me. Maybe they have. Maybe they have no inkling of having wronged me could care less if they did. Anyway, the note I have in my prayer list with these three, and Abigail, do not go looking at my prayer list to figure out who they are, or there'll be a fourth. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. The note to myself says, can I be happy for them? And And, and I... That was, that's my tell, I guess, is I think if I can get to the point where I'm actually happy for them, then I've let it go. It's something I'm still wrestling with. But I want to look closer at today's text because it's relevant to everything I've been saying up to this point. It says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. That's verse 17. I want to ask you, do you hate someone in your heart? Do you hate someone in your heart? That sounds rather stark, that word, doesn't it? Hate. You would say, I'm, I'm quite confident, I don't hate anyone. I don't hate anyone. But if once we read a little further, and it says in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor. Now we're talking language that maybe makes a little bit more sense. It hits closer to home. Maybe you are a hater. It's easier to identify your sin and your uglier self When you look at the word grudge, okay, grudge, use grudge instead of the word hate. Are you holding a grudge against anyone? We probably all remember times when we've held grudges. Some people are really good at it. give you a better idea of what I'm talking about. Grudge. Jewish commentator Baruch Levine, he writes that the Hebrew word for grudge means this. It means to keep, guard, and retain the memory, the memory of another's offense. You're holding a grudge when you start to, what? Hold on to what someone else did to you or against you. Paul, the apostle, might refer to this as keeping a record of wrongs. I mean, you're gonna someone might do something against you. Okay, it happened, I've I've talked to them, or maybe I haven't talked to them, I've just forgotten about it. I put it away. You're not holding a grudge there. It's this other, the stewing over it. Paul, as I said, would refer to it as keeping a record of wrongs. You know where that's found? First Corinthians 13. The marriage passage. In 1 Corinthians 13.5 in the ESV, which is the Bible we use here, calls it being resentful, being resentful other translations call it keeping a record of wrongs taking account of evil you must thinketh no evil keep account of a wrong suffered you get the idea you're holding something against someone because of what they did so are you holding a grudge Right now, hatred doesn't always seethe, you know. Hatred doesn't always seethe. Sometimes it's just right where you are with the grudge. Sometimes malice feels light. You can begin to harbor resentment, a grudge, even while you live along, live with someone or walk alongside of someone, and all of a sudden, you've begun to hate. Yes, that's that word again, hate. Heavy word, but it's true. You can live among people and still begin to hold a grudge against them. It's how divorces happen. It's... It's responsible for church splits and the disassembling of a company or the dividing of a country. How do we behave when we are holding a grudge? I read a marvelous point made by a Puritan, Andrew Bonar, or Bonar, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He says you can hate in your heart, and listen, you can hate in your heart by restraining restraining, restraining your expression of love. I'm not going to show love to that person. I will, hold, I will withhold my love. The good things I would have done or should do, I won't. Hmm. I've certainly restrained my expression of love for my wife too often I've restrained it from others as well I'm going to stop talking to the person I think you've all done that I could be wrong I won't bother to assist that person though they could use my help because they got it coming These are intentional things done out of contempt. Oh, and then Jesus comes along. What's the second greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. A grudge warps your mind. In regard to the person or people you have begun to resent. It warps your mind. You don't think clearly about that person anymore. You cannot think straight about him. Everything he does or doesn't do is something else you will hold against him. Or her. If it's a race of people. Or some family or clan or a group like the Samaritans, for instance, in Jesus' parable, your prejudice will constantly manufacture a case against them, constantly. Once a grudge forms and you have malice in your heart, the person doesn't stand a chance. He need do no wrong and you will still find him guilty of stuff. Your heart wants to put him right into the crosshairs of your criticism. And that is nasty. J.H. Hertz writes, this is a great example. I shared it with Zach earlier in the week. The Talmud, he says the Talmud gives us an instance of this. That's Jewish literature. The Talmud instances, the Emperor Hadrian's conduct, he was the Roman emperor, the Emperor Hadrian's conduct is typical of men swayed by this hatred I'm talking about. This is short, but very sweet. One day on Hadrian's journey in the east, a Jew passed the imperial train, okay, the caravan that was moving through, a Jew passed the imperial train and saluted the emperor. Hadrian was beside himself with rage. You, a Jew, dare to greet the emperor? You shall pay for this with your life. In the course of the same day, another Jew passed him and warned, by, and warned by example did not greet Hadrian. You, a Jew, dare to pass the emperor without a greeting? He angrily exclaimed. You have forfeited your life. To his astonished couriers, he replied, I hate the Jews. Whatever they do, I find intolerable. I therefore make use of any pretext to destroy them. That's what we do. Once we're starting to hold a grudge, that's what we do. Any pretext you'll use to make them seem monster-like. I've experienced this in the church. I've experienced it in the workplace and even a bit from my own siblings. And I've done it too. I've done it too. To the grudge keeping person, the, the grudge keeping jaundiced eye, everything is yellow. And that's no good. It's unhealthy for the grudge keeper who's really the point who's really the the point of this whole text today it's the grudge keeper that's the person that Moses is dealing with, but it's also unfair to the victim, and it's never rooted in love further, the unloving and grudge harboring person is usually not satisfied satisfied to keep his grudge inside of himself he prefers For others to join along with him, it's actually one way for him to take vengeance against his offender, get others to hate the person with me. Yeah. We can all think badly of him. Oh, I know that doesn't sound like you, it never does. Hertz, again, he was, he was rich on this subject. Hertz, Hertz calls this multiplayer grudge-keeping. He, he calls it organized malice. It's the reason the Hatfields and the McCoys feuded. Hatred grew from wrongdoing. One Hatfield relative against one of the McCoy sons, the Hatfield murdered the McCoy in 1864 as, 1865 as the McCoy was returning from serving in the Union Northerner um, Army during the Civil War. The families, Hatfields and McCoys, they lived in the uh, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia area. And most of them fought on the Confederate side, and so this guy was an enemy and... He got a bullet. But there was no exacting of appropriate justice for the murder and no record of warrants being issued. At least that can be found. But a grudge was maintained and started and grew between the families. The families took sides against each other. Hatred was the soil in which it grew and later vengeance ensued. Thirteen years later, In 1878, the second instance of violence occurred. It followed a dispute about the ownership of a hog, of a hog. Floyd Hatfield owned the hog. He was a cousin of Anse's, the father of the Hatfields. But Randolph McCoy claimed the hog was his, saying that the notches on the pig's ears were McCoy and not Hatfield Mark's. The matter was taken to the local justice of the peace, Anderson Preacher Ants Hatfield, who ruled in favor of the Hatfields by the testimony of Bill Statton. Statton was a relative of both families. In June 1880, Statton was killed by two McCoy brothers, Sam and Paris, who were later acquitted on the grounds of self defense. The feud grew to become a national symbol of grudge-holding, hatred, and vengeance. And it went on. I just grudges, hatred, and vengeance. These are the antithesis of love. Justice is not against love. No, justice is not against love. But these other things are. And when you, because of your grudge, want to attract others into your hatred of someone or some group it can get really ugly you're not on Jesus side at those times so what is the cure for our souls is it is it to love others certainly Will you love the person enough that even if they've wronged you, you will still try to help them? You must still want what is good for them. Love is patient and kind. It is not resentful or irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Now, I'm going to add a caution. Okay. Although this text is directed at the grudge holder, the hater, right? because of how they're not responding correctly, which I'll get to in a second, of how they should respond to the person who's offended them, there's also a possibility that you can have these grudges and build these things up in you when that person never did anything wrong. Important caution. There are such things as imagined sins. You feel hurt, but the person did no sin at all. It's in your head. You begin to hold things against him or her or them, but it's really your own world of make-believe. You're withholding expressions of love all of a sudden. And maybe they start to notice that. Good, you think but they hadn't done anything. You're the sinner that needs to be reasoned with, frankly. You are. You have entered now, because they did nothing truly wrong, you have entered into slander of that person or defamation of character or whatever sin it comes down to. The problem is all with you and your bad heart. Heart, So beware of that. But no matter what someone else has done or not done, you've got to get your soul straight and and love your neighbor as yourself. And you'll need God's help for that. So verse 17 suggests it's a loving act to do something to reason frankly with your neighbor, the one who you believe to have sinned against you. It's a good alternative to holding a grudge. One commentator says it clears the air. You go talk to the person. How many times do do you say you talk to the person with whom you have this issue, the person who can do something about it? To reason frankly means you will attempt to clear the air by correction or maybe by rebuke. But by rebuke, you're not to be vengeful. It should not be a self-righteous rebuking of someone. That's hypocrisy. You should not think of the rebuke as an unloving condemnation. If that's what rebuke looks like, that is not the word being used here. The Greek word for rebuke is epitimao. And it means to warn by instructing, to censor, to meet out due measure. Your goal is is to make the person aware that they're not just skating by on this one. This one's pretty big. It's like Nathan coming to David and having to tell the parable about the man who stole the other man's ewe lamb or whatever it was. And David got all angry about the the theft. And then he turns to David, Nathan does, and he says, and you're the man. You did this. Nathan wasn't self-righteous, but he was pursuing Righteousness to be sure this is frank reasoning and should be handled very carefully i believe it to be what jesus refers to in matthew 18 if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother but if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In Galatians, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Reasoning, frankly, has as its goal the clearing of the air, the upholding of God's standards of righteousness, the restoration of a sinner from the error of his way, and the protection of a relationship. If you refuse to correct the sinner, then you are guilty of sin. Hmm. It says something like that. It says. You incur sin because of him. But why? This person did some dastardly deed against me or I see it going on regularly. If I don't reason frankly with him, then I somehow incur sin because of him? That doesn't seem fair. Fair. The meaning of this is a bit unclear. Does it mean, okay, that if I don't clear the air, so to speak, that I will then enter into sin because I will begin holding a grudge, etc., and that is how I incur sin? In other words, I go from a loving normal disposition to hate because the waters of malice have been stirred in me? Is that what it means to incur sin? Maybe, somewhat. Or, does it mean that I have become responsible for my brother's sin and I have been made guilty because I did not try to help him out of it? I incur sin by my neglect. Following along the line of there was sin in the camp and you did nothing about it. You knew it and you did nothing about it. I think maybe both of those are ways you incur sin if you don't take some action. Regarding that that second explanation of um not dealing with a brother who, who should be dealt with, reason with him frankly, sin sin by neglect. RJ Rushduni writes Anyone in any context who remained a passive, a passive observer of evil was guilty of evil. That's how the Sanhedrin had viewed it. God very plainly condemns passivity as evil and as complicity, as, as complicity with crime. So all such people are called wicked, Rush Dooney says. So if you know the evil that is going on and you do nothing about it, I'm not talking about some slight sin here. An evil that is going on, you do nothing about it, you're complicit with the crime. Okay. So love for your neighbor requires reasoning with them frankly if there's truly sin on their part. But this doesn't mean, careful here, that you run around after your brother every time you detect some sin in him ha you brother you should repent of that these verses are more about the grudge holder as i said than the sinner the sinners around him you should be charitable out of the gate a lot less censorious As for you turning every sin into a reason to hold a grudge, please, look. Forgiveness must be regular, 70 times 7. Even if your brother has sinned against you, you must be willing to forgive him. What if he does not ask me to forgive him? Then can I hold on to it? What if he refuses to admit his sin? Come on. If it's so serious, grant it. And has gotten you to the point where something must be done. And I hope that threshold is high or low, whichever way I should say that. There are still measures you are supposed to take. After you first talked with him privately, as I read earlier, Jesus said, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you It will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, there am I among them. This is still to be a process of frank reasoning and then discipline from out of compassion and love. But you, as a victim, should be willing to be long-suffering a lover of men's souls. And not someone running around disciplining everybody for their every sordid sin. But even if, even if you, K, okay, and the church end up, ends up needing to treat your brother as a gentile and tax collector, A.K.A. like someone outside of the faith, even if that's the case, remember this: we are still to love tax collectors and sinners, aren't we? We are to love our enemies. Jesus said. A defiant sinner will not be able to remove your obligation or mine to be right in our own souls before God. Jesus was asked, How many times must I forgive my brother? He said, As many times as you've been forgiven. One more thing. Short, last. Forgiveness is primary. But it doesn't mean you forget. All right? Forgive and forget, that's a bunch of baloney. It can work that way, but listen. What I'm saying is you can treat a person differently if they've sinned against you or they keep sinning against you. And that's just that might just be an act of your own responsibility. You should. You really should guard yourself and your family from regular sin. If your neighbor is a drunk driver, what do you do? You tell your kids, don't play near Barney's driveway. Is it because you got it out for Barney? No. You're just being smart. The guy comes home drunk three nights a week. You don't want your kids to get hurt. It's like if you're framing a house with your buddy and he hits your thumb with his hammer and it happens more than once you can forgive or excuse your buddy however you're, you're your own worst enemy if you keep putting your hand on that 2 by 4 where he's hammering you don't forget you learn if an employee keeps showing up late to work and it becomes disheartening to his coworkers, you may need to let him go That has nothing to do with your willingness to love or not love, to forgive or not forgive. Let us pray. Lord, I ask you to bless the uh, attempts here to teach through this passage and ramifications of it. I pray that we would indeed love our neighbor as ourself and and all that entails. Uh, Please keep teaching us, Holy Spirit, and uh, according to your word.